0: Hello friends, we are back with episode 112 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. Never a dull moment among our lives here on the Our Weekly host side, but we're here again for another fun episode to share with all of you the latest and greatest from our current Our Weekly issue. My name is Eric Nance and I am joined by my awesome co-host who always is great at keeping me in line, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, it is a an unusual day in terms of recording time in that uh, my daughter is not asleep in the next room, so I might be able to <laughs> might be able to actually sound like I'm speaking normally today.
0: Oh, you know, we, we always have our radio voices in different tones. We just like to spice it up a bit, don't we?
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Well, yep. And I've got kids at school, but I've got a lot going on in the tech around me that hopefully doesn't blow up, so to speak. But no, we're going to have fun today. And our curator this week, oh, yeah, let me check my fancy calendar thing that I just set up. Oh, it was me. Oh, yes, yes, it was me. My calendar reminded me. So, hey, win for Nextcloud. That's more for later on. But yes, it has been fun to curate this issue. We had a lot of great contributions. From our, our weekly team members and pro requests as well and contributors like all of you around the world. So let's dive into what this issue is all about. We always love our continuity on our weekly highlights, and we couldn't have scripted our first highlight any better because if you go in the not so way back machine and recall our previous episode one eleven, we discussed a great perspective from El Salmon on the practical meaning of what it's like to maintain an R package. Well, in our first highlight today, we get a fascinating and thought-provoking view from a maintainer of an R package that's used by thousands in the R community and has had quite a life cycle, if you will. And this is a blog post from Luis Ravela Sancho, bioinformatician at the University of Barcelona. So Louis's post starts with a lot of the ways that people kind of get into maintaining a package, especially if they're not the original author. And that's how they just want to help out. So Louis has been using the rtweet package in the past to create some fun little projects, such as a little, you might call bot that was showing some artwork. And so he noticed that there were a couple of things that could be improved, a couple of bug fixes. And he ended up sending some pull requests and then eventually got in touch with R OpenSci, where our tweet is under the R OpenSci umbrella for package stewardship. And lo and behold, after a little bit of time, with great help from the R OpenSci organization, he was given edit privileges to the repo to start adding some new pull requests and merging those in. Looking at issues and closing those as well, and slowly over time, Luis just fell into the package maintainer role. Now this is where things do get interesting, right? Just like we talked about last week, Luis was now knee deep in trying to manage the community around our tweet itself, i.e., other prospective users that saw a potential issue that are reporting it, or Others that were also contributing fixes to the package. So now it's a combination of managing issues, triaging priority in light of one of the biggest changes that Luis has had to deal with with our tweet. And that's the Twitter version two API, which has a lot of foundational differences from the version one of the API that our tweet has been supporting for a very long time. And so this is not a trivial task. It requires a lot of changes because it's not just URLs that are changing. It's also return structures from the API that are changing. And this is very much a long-term you know, fix to the package update. Well, luckily, he's been getting some interesting perspectives from some very prominent members of the R community, such as Hadley Wickham himself, about ideas to... To beef up the infrastructure of our tweet to support the version two of API and to clean up some, you might say, longstanding issues with the code, with the code base. But now Luis, just like everyone else, has a day job, has a a real life, if you will. He's not getting paid to maintain our tweet where there's no compensation for this. So, in light of trying to move the package forward to get support of version two of the RTweet API, he is putting out a call via this blog post and a a dedicated GitHub issue, which we'll link to in the show notes, for a new co-maintainer of RTweet to put it into this next level in light of both the version two integration, as well as keeping up with, if you've been reading the news a little bit lately from the Twitter side of things, some changes happening to the development, so to speak, with API access and the like. So it's a really thought-provoking post on just how Louise just kind of, you might say, fell into maintainership of the package, but it's also a great illustration of what we talked about last week. And it's not just the code, it's also the community, but also... When you need help, definitely asking for help. And my hope is that there will be an enthusiastic response from those in the community that are using our tweet regularly that have benefited greatly from it. That can help shoulder some of the burden of maintaining this package that, again, is not a trivial package. And it's not like it's only used by a handful of people. This is one of the more popular packages in terms of API integrations in the whole R ecosystem. So It'll be fascinating to watch this journey, but hopefully whatever we talked about here will put a nice spotlight on those interested to maybe give our tweet a little bit of a helping hand.
1: That's a great summary, Eric. And I, I empathize a lot with Luis. There's so much uncertainty with Twitter in general these days. I don't think anyone would be shocked if Twitter rolled out this brand new API that they're rolling out. Then a month from now they get rid of it and then two months later they roll out an entirely different api right there's so much volatility um, going on there so if i'm putting myself in Luis's shoes it's got to be pretty hard to find motivation to work on the maintenance of a package that may have to be overhauled on any given day <clears throat> he's sort of at the mercy of twitter and uh, i think especially right now that's maybe not a great place to be Um, So unfortunately, uh, I really do feel for him. You know, what I found really cool and insightful about this blog, Eric, as you did, is that Luis gave us a ton of backstory around how he became the maintainer of our tweet, you know, the ins and outs of others who helped to maintain it and their journey trying to make the package easier to maintain, which resulted in some breaking changes. And I think that's sort of a behind the scenes view of package maintenance that we don't get a lot that we take for granted. Um, and if you've ever used a package from someone who has a, a buy me a coffee link and you have the means to send them, you know, the equivalent of a cup of coffee, I think it's the very least that you can do. I do try to do this um, whenever I find myself checking out a GitHub repo because I'm trying to dig into a package and I, I you know, it's, it's a package that I'm going to be using on this particular project. And I see that they have that link there and it's, it's helping me, right? It's saving me the me time that is much more than the equivalent of, of a cup of coffee, um, for, from the value of my time. So it's really the least that I can do. Um, and I think it's a topic, you know, open source maintenance that, that we can't talk about enough. I was actually checking out Luis's Mastodon account, uh, earlier before we started recording and he had a re it's not a, uh, a boost I think, right. It's called when you, yes. you Uh, repost somebody else's uh toot if you will and it was all about the fact that there's this massively popular javascript library right now called core.js which is suffering a, a terrible fate because there's a single maintainer who's really struggling to keep up with maintaining the library while also providing for his family at the same time um, so it's, it's sort of a story that I guess we see over and over. And I hope that our tweet and other, our specific you know, open source libraries don't, don't suffer the same fate and that we are able to find better ways to improve this systemic problem. So I'll put a link to um, the, the, I think it's a GitHub issue around the core.js, core.js library, which is this really, really lengthy uh, post by the maintainer, um, which is, is quite a roller coaster uh, of a read, but maybe interesting for some folks to see how this sort of thing plays out just beyond you know the R ecosystem as well across other different uh, programming languages and open source software. You know, I, I have always said that I think the you know Posit slash R Studio model has been incredible. The fact that they are able to pay full time developers to work on open source software. Um, it is a is an awesome model that they have this this sort of hybrid model and it would be great to see more of that. I know that you know all open source software can't be necessarily company backed But maybe we can come up with some more creative ways to incentivize folks and to reward folks and and to to pay them for their time um, working on these packages. And we can sort of come together um, as as a community to to support each other, whether it be financially, whether it be uh, just helping out, with pull requests, things like that, helping out with maintenance. Um, So a really insightful blog post. I appreciate Luis taking the time to to put together all this backstory, all these thoughts. And I hope that someone out there, maybe it's it's somebody listening right now, um, will be willing to to step up and uh, feel moved by his story and, and try to help out with the our tweet package going forward.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of interesting ideas here and frankly, very important ones. I mean, as somebody who listens to a lot of you know, podcasts about open source software, whether it's in the Linux community or in the general DevOps space, this is a fundamental issue that a lot of people, and again, I'm not trying to blame anybody here, but there is definitely times where we take for granted these innovations that we're able to use free of charge, as in free of cost, but also it's all open, but yet there's somebody behind that code folks. And there's somebody that is taking a lot of time, typically, especially in this space, it's not their primary responsibility to make this community contribution, but to keep it going. It's not just throwing it over the wall and then just being like, you know, whatever happens, happens afterwards. They, they take pride in it and they want to make sure the community is well served for it. And I wish there were easier ways to make sure that maintainers could get a system for compensation or a system for contributions up and running easier. There are some ways to do it. Obviously, if you're on something like GitHub, you can have issue templates, you can have pull request templates to make it easier for code contributions. But then it's not just code. A mantra that I've learned recently is in this uh, value for value initiative that I've been fascinated about, It's time, talent and treasure. What that kind of means is that contributions don't have to be financial. They can be somebody's time from the community to help fix a bug using their talent in, say development space. It can be just spreading awareness of a package or finding issues that others are seeing and reporting them effectively. There are many ways to contribute to this. So yes, being a co-maintainer does have its unique responsibilities. But I think there's strength in numbers too. It can lessen the burden of these maintainers when you have an enthusiastic community to help out. And that's something I'm hoping to explore both for even my projects, but also for the the packages and other system libraries that I'm using day to day. If they have, like you said, Mike, a nice little link to buy them a, a virtual coffee or a GitHub sponsor or anything like that, go ahead and, and send them a little bit. It, it, it never hurts. It, it gives motivation as well. And frankly, I think there's some really promising new tech coming up that I'm even going to start piloting for podcasts like this. that will make it even easier for people to contribute across different ways. So I think it's important. And hopefully um, us being able to talk about this will give Luis uh, some nice uh, contributors in the very near future.
1: Absolutely. I think that lends us into our next highlight, which sort of extends the conversation around open source software, right?
0: It sure does. Yes. And if you've been watching the news or hearing the tech news around things like ChatGPT, you know it's been changing the game in a lot of ways. But there's one particular issue that I've seen, and especially those of us that work in a quote unquote regulated industry are definitely paying attention to is that tools like this can give you a really coherent answer. It may sound like a human's really spoken it well, but if you look at the context of the answer, it can be tremendously way off. Now, this can also happen when you're developing a package and you're building in infrastructure for say your you know, backward compatibility checks or regression testing at kind of a more, like I said, infrastructure level. But if your package is wrapping a new or, you know, somewhat traditional statistical model or statistical analysis in a maybe in a new way, you might pass all those infrastructure like tests. But can you be really sure that your method is doing what it's supposed to do? This next blog post for our second highlight from Hugo Gruson, a research software engineer with data.org puts a nice set of principles for those of us that are writing packages that wrap statistical methodology for some nice starting points for how you can take advantage of the same kind of principle that we often see in CI CD pipelines to check that your package is doing what it's expecting from a statistical point of view. Now somebody who's a classically trained statistician from way back in the day I will not tell you how long it was till I got my PhD, that's for another podcast altogether, but I can definitely sympathize with either using a new methodology or, or trying to wrap my head around an existing one and making sure that my stuff, my new code that I'm writing makes actual sense. So Hugo first starts off in his post by probably the most bang for your buck principle to follow. Is that if your statistical method that you're building in your package has you might call a reference or a companion version of that methodology it would be probably wise to build a comparison of that other method in your cicd pipeline this can be straightforward or it might not be so straightforward but it can help you immensely if you start tweaking certain parameters in your algorithm to make sure that what you're tweaking still is somewhat in line with the other proposed uh, companion methodology that you're trying to wrap here. So that is one approach, but you may not always have that reference implementation available. Next, he talks about, well, maybe if there's a certain, you might say logical range of your results, you can think of as an upper and lower bound, you could see that if your algorithm is still producing results that fit into that more sensible range. Maybe you're only supposed to get positive integers out of an algorithm or a positive numeric summary, or you may be on the other side, maybe a negative set of results. But just to make sure that it's in that tight range, again, this is not something that will immediately tell you from an infrastructure standpoint if your package is working, but this is again, tailored towards the methodology But throughout this post, Hugo does a great job of showing how this can be incorporated into test that framework, which again is very familiar to package authors for building automated testing in their apps. And then lastly, a lot of times these algorithms can have a lot of parameters that tweak either performance or tweak, you know, under the hood things like convergence theorems and the like. Well, you want to make sure that when you're tweaking those that your output is changing accordingly. So again, uh, Hugo has a great example based with a centroid function of how if you change certain parameters that it will still work as expected again in a test that framework. So this is a great, great summary here. And then uh, Hugo concludes with how, yes, automation is huge for us to make sure our packages are not having regressions, and they fit, say, CRAN check requirements and the like. But nothing beats peer review as well. And that's where it's not just automation can solve everything. Getting a set of eyes, especially from subject matter experts, on the methodology will pay huge dividends. And one real-life example that has just come to fruition as of a few months ago in the statistical modeling space, especially... For those of us in the life sciences uh, uh, industry, that has really caused a lot of great positive attention is the new MMRM package for wrapping mixed model repeated measures analysis in R that's taking advantage of new convergence theorems and also giving output that does mimic a certain reference implementation with three letters that we've often had to deal with in our day-to-day in life sciences. And that is becoming a a very nice use case of not just automation for the infrastructure, but they have tests that look at the reference implementation and look at, are there any divergence? Is everything working as expected? It's an interesting model behind that sort of framework. Mm -hmm that again has a whole team behind it, but yet having those checks early on and then repeating those checks every time you make new updates or fix a bug is gonna help you both from an infrastructure standpoint as well as a does my statistical analysis actually make sense standpoint. Cause you gotta have both if you're doing, if you're doing anything in this
1: space. We have some deep, deep topics today uh, on the our weekly highlights. I guess the curator must have been feeling feeling pretty deep uh, this past week, which is great because this is another fantastic topic that I, I agree deserves a lot of attention and conversation. And, and like you said, there's a movement right now towards open source in industries that have traditionally been somewhat against it or hesitant um you know particularly your industry eric life sciences and either uh, even other regulated industries like, like finances as, as well um the advantages are, are easy to spot right A richer ecosystem of packages and libraries and extensions uh larger community things like that but we do have to acknowledge that that some of the users of closed source software may have valid questions about switching to open source. And one of those questions might be, how do we know that the results this open source software is producing are are correct? And as much as we hate to acknowledge it, it is a valid question, Um, especially when the stakes are so high. Um, some of the closed source offerings, you know, have things like uh, in the U.S. here SOC two uh, compliance, right? And, and I won't get into to my opinion on the the rigorousness or or lack thereof of some SOC two reports that I have seen out in the wild, but it's something, right? To say, hey, you know, this software has been independently reviewed to ensure its statistical correctness, right? Some someone went through that exercise. But I guess at the end of the day, the, the conclusion here from Hugo uh, is one that I really strongly agree with. You know, it's, it's not just going to take writing as many unit tests as you possibly can. Um, and it's not just saying, you know, hey, a million people use this software, and they will find the bugs in, in the edge cases, and then we'll fix them. Um, or you know, we'll rely only on, on peer-reviewed publications alone. It's going to take all of these things working in concert, I think, to ensure the rigorousness of our open source software that we love. Um, And and at the end of the day, I think it's the combination that is miles ahead of of what the proprietary software can offer around validity and statistical correctness. Um, And I think just another argument for you know the power of open source software the power of what we have in the our ecosystem when we all we all work together um so great post by hugo
0: yep and and it really highlights again some of the initiatives that we're seeing where it's not so much one specific vendor behind say peer review or analysis of these packages that are influential in industries like mine It's a community of us getting together, forming these groups from the ground up so that it's more of a open process. And it's a very transparent process as these packages are both being built and being assessed for statistical rigor and making sure that they're doing as expected. So, again, I have to draw upon my day job experience here, but with the advent of things like the Pharmaverse for this collection of packages to make clinical reporting much easier It's being built in the open, but also there's just a lot of attention in the right ways from both the infrastructure side and the statistical review side, making sure that everything is as as expected. We acknowledge that not every domain can have that amount of attention on it. But as you said, Mike, there was a time not too many years ago where something like this was unheard of. So it can happen no matter how daunting it may seem. It can definitely happen. So just persevere. And um, finding allies to join you on that journey can certainly help. I
1: couldn't agree more.
0: He did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. He did the well, sometimes it can seem, like I said, daunting to do all this from the ground up. You might say as daunting as sometimes when my kids are trying to solve a puzzle that just seems like there's no end in sight. Or when they were really younger trying to solve that little maze that they got in the coloring book or something. Well, who would have thought that in our last high we can combine two of some of my favorite loves here, shiny and puzzle solving, all in one terrific highlight here? And that's where Enrique Hermo has created a shiny app that mimics a monster maze right in Shiny itself. Now, again, you can just go to the app directly and, and probably <laughs> have a good few minutes, if not a few hours, trying to beat your high scores or trying to solve the levels. It brings like all the all the joy, nostalgic feelings of a dungeon crawler and something that's just super easy to work with. So I, I was all over this. But uh, Enrique's blog post is just as fascinating where you start to see the development journey of this app and some of the principles that he's taken, which I think are very helpful no matter what space you're doing in a Shiny app development, some of the logic that he tried to solve here.
1: So I guess this is a console game that Enrique refactored for uh, R and, and a Shiny app. And this is a, a type of blog post that we haven't had in a while. And it doesn't surprise me in the least bit that this co- coincidentally happened to be the issue that you curated, Eric, is that we're getting a nice video game in R and Shiny at the end of this. So. I played it. It's super easy, really responsive, actually, for a shiny app that's hosted on shinyapps.io. And I was playing on my iPhone, which I believe is the preferred device type to to play the game with. Although I did try it out on desktop and it it worked just fine. Uh, One thing that I, I love about it is the classic audio. Um, that Enrique employed <laughs> that was an with awesome
0: touch. I love it. <laughs> yeah.
1: it. It happens when the game boots up and then I, I think, uh, when you, when you either win or lose, um, you get a nice little audio, uh, kick out. And I think he, he employed the help of the Howler R package, which allows shiny apps to leverage the howler.js JavaScript library, which provides interactive audio that can be triggered to start or stop playing from the server. And that Howler R package was developed by Ashley Baldry, who seems to have quite a few R packages out there that wrap JavaScript libraries. I, I may have went down a rabbit hole checking out his GitHub repositories. And I think we might have mentioned him before on the podcast uh, in somewhat of a similar vein. So it, again, it's, it's one of these games, I think, where you just use uh, the up, left, and right arrows on your keyboard to navigate, uh, the maze. And I think there's also buttons that will take you forward left and right. Um, if you're for instance, on your iPhone and, or Android device, and you need to, uh, click one way or the other. And I forget, is there a name for what those type of games are called? Where you are just sort of navigating through with left and right and, and up and back arrows.
0: Yeah. I, I, I still call them dungeon crawlers, but it was like the old Atari well, I'm going very back machine here. The Atari 2600 game called Adventure. It gave me serious vibes of that and many hours sunk trying to solve the dragon puzzle there.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. So Enrique ran it, I guess maybe the last thing that I'll, I'll note, you know, it's a great blog post to read his recap on how he developed it. And he sort of walks you through the GitHub repository as well. If you're interesting, interested in, in, in forking it yourself to see how it all Works, um, but he he did have some pretty cool, uh, which was very topical, as you know, Eric. Pretty cool insight to how he initialized a reactive value uh, before the app um, launched to sort of store some store some settings um, for the user before sort of any uh, of the other server side code in the app uh, was was rendered and run. So I thought that was really interesting from a technical. Shiny perspective.
0: Yeah, actually, well, let's let's dive into that. But I did pick that out. Something I wanted to mention, too, is that it's a combination of reactive values or reactive valve. They both do similar things to have something that your app is going to keep track some kind of state about. And in this app, you definitely need to keep track of state of where the player is moving, where the ghosts or other monsters are, where the where the doors are and everything like that. So the question is, if you have something where multiple processes in the app are gonna hit that same common structure, what's the best way to set that up? Reactive values is by far my go-to for that. The other nugget is, is that we often use something like observe event in the context of like a button being pressed or some other trigger, right? Well, silly old me never really realized until reading this, that you could just have an observe event run at the very beginning of your Shiny app where instead of you're doing like a typical input dollar sign name of your button click, you just put the word true in there. And then your app, when it runs says, oh, okay, that's evaluating the true, I'm gonna run this. But then it doesn't run again. That is perfect for your initialization step. And why I didn't think of that sooner, I have no idea. but. Little nuggets like this, this is why I love seeing what people in the Shining community create, is that there's always some little trick that I never thought about. So between that, Observe event trick, as well as that really cool audio JavaScript library, which as an audio uh, junkie myself, I probably need to leverage that more in my fun apps. That this This was fascinating, so... Is it a surprise I put this in the highlight? It better not be if you know me pretty well.
1: (laughs) Definitely. And I guess there's a couple other things on that Observe event rabbit hole that we could dive into. I think there is an argument within Observe event called once, and you can set that to true such that you're just ensuring that this Observe event only runs once, right? If that event, I guess, is observed a second time. Uh, the logic within that observe event will not fire, if I understand correctly. And the second thing there is, I believe, as of Shiny 1.6.0, they are recommending that you move towards uh, using the bind event function and piping that uh, underneath your observe call at the end in favor of using observe event. But I I think for now, we're still okay.
0: You know, I'm a bit of a curmudgeon on that. It, you have to take away observe event from my cold hands, if you will. I I have so much muscle memory of that. So many workflows that depend on that. It's going to take some time for me to, I, I've done a little bind event stuff, but you know, it, it, it takes me a while to change on that sort of thing. So sorry, Winston, if you're listening, but you know, I, I'll, I'll get to it eventually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I hear you.
0: Well, at least what you don't need a lot of time to get into is the rest of this issue. There's a lot of great content here and a lot of fun curating it, as I always do. And one of the additional finds that I'm going to talk about is, well, I've been through a lot of debugging traps uh, recently, and it's especially difficult when you're debugging when you don't really see a classic error. Like everything seems to be working, right? but not quite. So this additional find is a great blog post of how dplyr select might give you a little bit of head-scratching moments when you have to deal with duplicated columns. So I won't spoil the rest, but it is just, I got the feels after reading this one of uh, being down similar rabbit holes of either my dplyr pipelines or maybe a per call that did something totally wacky that I did not anticipate but it was very very difficult to track down so there be dragons if you have duplicate columns in your data set let's just say that <laughs> mike what did you
1: find that's an interesting one to find i'm gonna to have to dig into that one i found a blog post by nicola rennie on making pretty pdfs with quarto uh, where she i believe created a latex extension um, or a quarto extension if you will, that encompasses a ton of LaTeX code that she has written for us because no one wants to write LaTeX code themselves. Uh, <laughs> please, please,
0: Mike, don't make me give me flashbacks to my dissertation. Oh, <laughs> yes, the, exactly,
1: the pain. The pain. So she has done a lot of it for us that um, you can leverage or you can tweak to create your own Quarto extension to make a beautiful PDF. If uh, you are at the mercy of rendering to PDF, at least we can try to make it look as nice as possible. So I, I thought that this was a really nice blog post that I think could potentially speak to a lot of folks out there.
0: Yeah. And I admit if I have to go the quote unquote static route, PDF is a lot more fun to deal with than the other formats that end in a dot DOCX, for example. Let's just leave it at that. But yes, if you have the know-how, you can do a whole bunch of slick things with it. It reminds me of some explorations I have with Quarto and PDF recently for this um, our submission pilot that we did with a shiny app to regulators. We did a cover letter in Quarto with PDF. So why not make it look like an official letter that uh, somebody wrote on their typewriter from back in the day. So, you know, it, it's always fun to tweak it when you, when you have time.
1: <laughs> That's awesome.
0: Well, the rest of the issue is just as awesome. So we definitely invite you to check out all the links that are in this current issue. And certainly as we talked about before, with contributions to open source software in many different ways. Hey, it's the same for podcasting too. We have a lot of ways that you can contribute back. First, we just appreciate you spreading the word out. If you liked our episode, just give us a little shout on Mastodon or Twitter. We'll have that contact information shortly. You can also get in touch with us directly via the contact page, which is directly linked in this episode's show notes. So it'll take you right there on the spot. And also, if you value what you're hearing on this and you're listening to one of those new Modern fancy podcast apps that you can get at newpodcastapps.com like Fountain or Podverse. You can send us a little boost directly in the podcast uh, app itself. You don't have to leave it at all. It's very easy to integrate with other services, and we have links to how you can do that in the show notes as well. And as I mentioned, we love hearing from you in the community. So if you want to get in touch with me, Again, very sporadically still on Twitter with at the Rcast, and I'm more frequently checking my Mastodon account, which is at podcast, at podcastindex.social. And Mike, where can the listeners find you?
1: Yes, and likewise, with uh, respect to Twitter and Mastodon, but on Twitter, Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K, and Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org.
0: And one other plug about the issue itself, that um, it was a, a unique opportunity for as of a few days ago that Mike and I could not just team up for a podcast recording, we teamed up on a Shiny app too. So that that app is in the Shiny section of this week's highlight as well. So that was a fascinating way to team up with you. That was a lot of fun.
1: Big, big thanks to Eric for solving a interesting, uh, unique reactive values issue that I was up against. And uh he came through in the clutch.
0: You know, it's, it's the least I can do, man. The least I can do. It was tons of fun. It's great to learn new tricks and use pay it forward, as they say with tricks I've learned at the day job to get me out of a few jams. So it's great to great to team up on that and makes me get the itch to do more shiny apps in the open again once uh, things settle down for me. But yeah, in due time, of course. Well, that will, speaking of time, I got to wrap this episode up of 112 of our weekly highlights and we'll be back with episode 113 of our weekly highlights next week